Yeah, that should be a great concert. No. Uh-uh. All right. Um, we roll into this. Uh, things from the weekend. Questions? Comments? Observations? <coughs> yes, ma'am? Yes, I thought that was interesting that uh, before every conference now they're going to have a, a women's conference and it's eight and up rather than breaking out young women and you know and then six months later having Relief Society it's going to be the Saturday night before conference or yeah Friday night before conference Sat- Saturday night the week before. I don't know, but it's just kind of a women's conference. But I did think it was interesting to drop down to eight and up. Uh, so, yes. pretty good deal. Okay, yes, ma'am. Uh, starting tomorrow, the new presentation the temple will be offered in Spanish. Ah, so that when people go into a session and they see headphones, they don't walk out because they're waiting for the new. Okay, awesome. So Spanish and Portuguese. Wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Two percent of Florida. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, the the lar- the church uh, bought a very large tract of land near the Panhandle, uh, and and if you actually though if you read carefully, uh, it was actually purchased by a tax-paying uh, corporation wholly owned by the church, uh, and I think it's more for investment purposes because a return so that they can protect ourselves financially. But it's all, so it's all timberland and cattle and, and stuff like that. But yeah, that brings us up to about 2% of Florida. Yeah. And it made the oceanfront property. Oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> it's like people buying in Nevada figured that at some point they'll be oceanfront. That, that's really good. <laughs> if they don't repent, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much own Northwest Missouri. <laughs> we we do in, in large tracts. Okay. Um, largest cattle owner in the United States. Yeah. Are we the largest cattle owner? Really? Uh, on a more sober note, I understand that uh, so far we know about 11 saints have lost their life in the Philippines. Uh, it does rain on the uh, righteous and on the wicked, and I suspect that that number will probably go higher. Uh, because at this point, there's still there's still a, a chunk of missionaries that they can't make uh, connection with, uh, and so we're kind of holding our breath a bit on that. So far, everybody they they've been contacted been okay. But holding so our breath. Saints, not missionaries. So far, that's saints. Yeah, we know of eleven as of what I noticed this morning. So I've kind of been watching that. So. All right. Uh, anything else? Now, I, um, Cindy and I had an interesting uh, experience on uh, Saturday night. I just thought I'd share this with you. Uh, there's a production of the uh, screw tape letters uh, that just was here. I think it's now gone. Uh, that it was at the Eisman Center. 
And uh, for those of you who don't know, C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters, which is a letter from the, one of the head devils, Screwtape, uh, to his nephew, Wormwood, uh, about how to work with his patient who was becoming a Christian. And, have, and so the whole conversation is about our father below and the enemy above, you know. Uh, and C.S. Lewis mentioned a couple of things about how hard it was to kind of try to get into the head of a devil. Uh, but it is, we had a chance to meet with the, uh, have a question and answer session with the producer of the Screw Tape Letters. And he said that it was not a very well-known uh, item that the patient in the Screw Tape Letters is in fact C.S. Lewis. Uh, and so he was being very open about the patient's struggles and what the devils were doing to try and reclaim him. Uh, and then, and he's horrified, and the whole thing begins to fall apart. Things are going along swimmingly, in case you don't know the story. Things are going along swimmingly. The devil's working very well with this patient until he meets a woman. And the woman is a very pious Christian woman, and, and the devils just kind of go crazy. It all kind of falls apart after that. Uh, and uh, delightful. But there were so many great little insights coming, of course, from C.S. Lewis. Uh, but, but one of them I thought was... Um, but, so this is screw tape, and he has a little devil that is like r- walking around him all the time. <laughs> and, the, and the quote is this. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it while it is really finding its place in him. Okay, and so, so part of what... Uh, screw tape is telling him is help him become prosperous. You know, he, he also tells him uh, at one point a uh, a moderate religion is actually better than no religion at all. Help him find a moderate religion where he just he's comfortable. And then what happens? He talks about then then the road to hell is gradual. It is that, so you, there's no signpost, there's no recognizing where you are on the path. Just keep him on a gradual, gentle slope. Uh, anyway, I, uh, I, I do mention this because apparently uh, the producer said that this time next year they're hoping to have their next production, uh, which is The Great Divorce. Uh, that is, uh, should be an incredible story. Uh, and another time we'll talk, we've talked a little bit about The Great Divorce in here, I think, last year, but uh, that's coming. All right. That said... Whoops. How do I do that? Kind of weird. All right. Now, as as we get started, I want to I want to set the table a little bit for what we're going to talk about today because. One of the things that we can get caught up in the Old Testament and the stories of the Old Testament, in the same way that we get caught up in the stories of the Book of Mormon and the New Testament, and, and, and uh, stories are the way, and in fact, C.S. Lewis mentioned that quite a bit in Screwtape Letter, but stories and narrations are important. It's how we remember things. Okay? This is one of those stories, though, that we need to keep in mind, and that is that if we simply read the Exodus as a historical kind of thing will gain some insights, but will miss the greater insights. 
Because the story of the Exodus, you remember, is the story of Israel that is saved by virtue of going where? To Egypt. That's how they're going to be saved from the drought. Then over a period of time, Egypt then slowly becomes uh, slave ridge. Slave ridge. Is that a word? I like that. It becomes slave ridge. <laughs> to them and we're going to go through the process what it took to get them out that they got to a point where they could not of their own affairs their own abilities get themselves out of slavery <laughs> yes I know they couldn't get themselves out on their own they needed help they needed to be guided and directed or they needed what what uh, the Lord would say to Joseph Smith, they needed to be brought out by the strong arm. Okay? Now, let me ask you this then. And this is the thing I want you to kind of keep foremost in your mind as we talk about it today. Um, the, the main stumbling block for the children of Israel getting out of slavery was who? Pharaoh. Okay? So here's my question. Do we have Pharaoh's in our life today. Okay? Those things or people, the things that that enslave us and prevent us from getting out of where there's more freedom and in and of ourselves we we do not possess the ability to save ourselves. Examples of pharaohs would be what? TVs. Sometimes it could be a TV. We might be pl plugged into that literally. Okay, what else? Debt. Pornography is a pharaoh. Uh, it starts off as just kind of curiosity and then it slowly enslaves over time. Great example. What else? Being busy. Well, we're just being busy. We're just getting, we get involved in all the busyness of life. Okay, I can be a pharaoh. Now remember, the idea of the Pharaoh is, is that we don't recognize it, but over a period of time it has enslaved us. And then when we finally recognize it, then we, just, we, we try and get away from it and we fail and we try and we fail. And it takes a number of miracles to get us out. What would be another? Yeah. Music even can be one. Uh, we had a lot of missionaries who really struggled with it. They couldn't, couldn't let go of the stuff. Yes, and video games. Yeah, we're, a lot of the missionaries coming out now are like a, so addicted to computer screens and take yeah. the screen and then an inability to actually interact face to face with people can be feral. That's not okay. Yeah. Somebody like anything that's addictive, you know, like Overeating can be a feral, can it? But it just seems like no matter what you do, you can't quite get away from that. Yeah. Okay. That's not okay. Yeah. You know, by definition, what you call Pharaoh's addictions, uh, as I've always told you, it's everything physical in life. I mean, if you're into sports cars more than the Lord, if you're into the physical side of life more than the spiritual, you have a Pharaoh. Almost, isn't it interesting that almost anything that sound, looked like it was a salvation or it was a joy at one time can become, in, can become a Pharaoh to us if, it, if it's something that's going to enslave us. And how do we know that it has, how do we know that it's a pharaoh? Spend all of our time, and? When it's limited, it's 
it, it starts to limit. In other words, we have less freedom as a result of that. And you start to lose balance. We can have uh, hobby horses in the church. You know, sometimes people have got caught up and made something as good as genealogy or the second coming or something like that can actually turn into a pharaoh because we become so, uh, we lose balance with everything else. Okay? So I guess my question to you is, as as we're talking today about Egypt and pharaoh, I want you to be aware of who your pharaohs or what your pharaoh might be and what it takes to get up, to be brought out of Egypt by the strong arm. And again, the, the idea of a pharaoh is you can't do it on your own. How about repentance? Can you repent without the Savior? Even if you do the seven R's, you know. The, the remorse and regret and report and all that stuff. No. Okay? So we're looking for pharaohs. So keep that, keep that in the backdrop of what we talked about today. Alright, that said, uh, let's go to uh, Exodus 7. We had to start with this because this is the image we have of Moses and Pharaoh anyway, right? <laughs> We get to heaven, we run into Yul Brenner, we're going to go, Pharaoh, how did you get here? (laughs) I can't believe you made it. Okay, now. There is a reoccurring uh, uh, biblical typo here. And... And it shows up over and over, and let's just mention it once. The Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh. Uh, Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. And verse 3, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Does that make sense? No. No. That's why when we get these scriptures, the inspired version helps us so much to take a look at this. Because actually on this, if you if we click on that, Actually, if you look at the bottom, and Pharaoh will harden his heart, as I said unto thee, thou shalt multiply thy son. In other words, Joseph went through all of this and said, the Lord didn't harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the Lord knew that. Okay? And, and uh, by the way, the other one that's there, uh, see, I've made thee a god to Pharaoh. Does that make sense? No. I have made thee a prophet to Pharaoh, and thy Aaron thy brother shall be my spokesman. Okay? Alright, that said. What verse is that in? The... Th- th- that's in Exodus 7, and then the first through. But all the way through, whenever it talks with, with all, each one of these plagues, it will say, And God uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it's always Pharaoh. Is doing very well on his own. He doesn't need God's help to harden his heart. Now, <coughs> when Pharaoh shall speak to you, saying, "Show a miracle," then shall I say unto Aaron, "Cast down thy rod, or take thy rod, cast it, and it shall become a serpent." Remember, we've got all of this. Then we're going to go through the process, and I don't want to take too much time today on kind of walking through every one of the plagues. 
But let me just ask a question in general. We know that the plagues get gradually worse, right? And then what is the very last plague or miracle? It's the firstborn. We're going to talk about the Passover in just a second. Okay? Now, if the, did the Lord know that Pharaoh wasn't going to release his people till the last one? Yes. Right, he knew that already. Then why do the other nine? Why run through all of the other painfulness of all the other plagues when they weren't going to work? <coughs> So part of the purpose of the plagues might have been as much for Israel's uh, benefit as it would have been for Israel. Yeah. Uh, um, probably lots of Absolutely. Yeah, God will give us a million chances if one of those ultimately will work. Just one. Yeah. Go ahead, now you can go. I changed my mind. Yeah, and then at the last minute, he's like, oh, no, 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 no. no. I mean, you know, and so I, I think similar to what you said, you know, my God is going to lots of choices and opportunities before he just. Right. Away. Okay. Yeah. Some process of time. We don't know how long. Yeah. Well, and, and there may be a, a bit of an arc. I mean, in, in the terms of uh, if we're going to cause the river to be blood, and then we're going to follow that by frogs, and then when the frogs die, then give me lice. And then, I mean, you can start to see that with some of these, are, there may be a natural progression to it. Okay. And it was teaching Moses continually to have faith, to endure. So part of this is him training Moses. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a possibility. Yeah. Aren't they all symbolic? Or something? Aren't they what? Aren't they symbolic? Yes. Yeah. I was hey, hoping hey, you'd tell us what. Hey, hang on to that one. I'm going there in a second. Didn't you say that it was to show that they could best every one of the Egyptian gods? We're, we're going to do that one in addition. Yeah. You guys listen real well. Well, and think about what we talked about last time. Do signs convert? No. Did they convert Pharaoh? No. No. In fact, even after they leave, he changes his mind again, right? So, so we're trying not to be sign seekers, but sign followers. Because signs do nourish the faith of those that would believe. Yeah. Also, just the Egyptian people. I mean, I'm sure this impacted their... You know, there was some teaching there for them. I don't know what they got. Well, because the, the Egyptian people all the way through, they also had their experiences with all of this. And the first few plagues also inflicted the uh, uh, Israelites as much as it affected the, the Egyptians. Okay? Yeah. The Lord teaches, teaches repetition... Um, in fact, uh, who was it that was telling me? Somebody who'd worked in the temple a long time. So she's still laughing as she's telling me about it. 
the, the experience of the man that she saw walking down the hall in the temple uh, and all dressed up and just kind of leaving. She says, why are you going? He says, I've seen this movie before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I don't like rerun. Okay. Now, I, I want to give you. I, I think all of these are these are all true because again, it would seem to make sense that if just from economy of effort, if we're just being efficient, use the last plague, get Israel out, we're done in one night instead of all of this other folder roll that we're going to unfold. Okay. Now. So let's hop over for just a second. Why the plagues? Why would the Lord choose to do it this way? If you look over at Exodus 9, 13. This is about halfway through. But I want you to see the purpose behind it. Verse 13. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. Uh, my brain is telling me that there's something about rise up early. There's a lesson in there somewhere about if you're going to confront evil, uh, do it early and do it quickly. Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. Now, for I will at this time send all my plagues where? Upon thy heart. What was it that kept getting pardoned? Heart. So these plagues, the nature of them, were set up in such a way to go straight to Pharaoh's heart. Sounds like he was set up for a heart attack. Literally. It was a heart stopping event. Soften that heart. That soften. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. She's saying if you look at the things that are happening, that what we're getting these these more massive. Think about the tsunami in, in Indonesia a few years ago, and and uh, the the, the tsunami in Japan. We're getting these larger kind of things against our hearts. Now let's go back to the idea. Do you have in mind your Pharaoh? If, if, the, if the Lord could send you a Moses and remove a Pharaoh from your life, the first place he'd have to do would be to send these plagues, which we could call miracles, these magnificent, miraculous events sent by the gods, directed by a prophet, and these would go directly to your heart. Because when we are so afflicted by our Pharaohs, we tend to... Harden our heart. What's coming with the great divorce uh, with C.S. Lewis, we've talked about it before, is the fact that the great divorce is a bunch of people in hell that get on a bus to go to heaven. They, they, and they can choose whether they go to heaven or not. And the battle with the, with the main guy is the fact that he has a lizard on his shoulder and his lizard is his favorite sin. And he's going to have to give up the lizard. He has to kill the lizard before he can walk into heaven and he's not sure he wants to do that. 
And the battle it takes in working with an angel to kill that lizard that prevents him from walking into heaven. Okay? If you would have a Pharaoh removed from your heart, or from your life, the first thing is, is that your heart must be softened. And he will send miracles against that, that result in the softening of your heart. And so that's why I say I, I, I like that. With, as far as the world is concerned, we may see larger and larger miracles that will go against our hearts. Does that make sense? Okay. I will send this time all my plagues against thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, and thou may, that thou mayest know. Okay, here's the reason. That, now we see that. Here's the thing, that. So that. In order that. So that. Thou mayest know there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence and thou shalt be cut off from the earth and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee, Moses, up. Why? Why, Moses? For to show in thee, in Moses, my power. And why? That my name that my name may be known. Now, isn't that our job as Israel? Aren't we supposed to declare His name in Christ crucified? That's us. That's what we do. Now, what happens though in your life if you're then going to say uh, somehow a miracle has occurred and your Pharaoh, your weakness, your sin, your trial, your addiction, your struggle has been lifted from you. What are you then supposed to do when you have been delivered from your Egypt? Testify, right? Let the world know what has happened. Not just what happened, but how it happened. Only God could have done this. I know that for uh, those in the seventh ward and in McKinney, we lost a, a good sister uh, over the. What was her name? Pam Gilliland. Pam, Pam Gil Gilliland. Gilliland. Uh, I didn't know Sister Gilliland. Uh, but in talking with. Um, she passed away during the week and she left a family of four children. Four children the oldest being. 16. 16. Uh, talking to one of the brethren yesterday that was. One of the first ones, I guess, over to their home. Um, he mentions that um, she she passed away at home, and um, his cancer. Yeah, no, it wasn't cancer. No, heart attack. Heart, heart attack. It was a blockage of the heart. Yeah. She had a stomach ache. She went to bed. She was nine So so she died at home, and and when he went over there, uh, the. Her, her body hadn't yet been uh, uh, taken by the coroner. So the kids were upstairs. Uh, I tell that it kind of <coughs> And he said that he went up there. And the kids, the oldest, were spending that time with the younger kids, reminding them what their mother had taught them. Their legacy. Her legacy. 
Remember when she taught you this. Remember when she taught you that. Remember when she did this. That's her legacy. I think when miracles occur, it ought to be at that level. This is what happens. And God is good. And who did we learn it from? Where did we get it? Okay. That, that is the purpose of all of this, that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Fascinating to me, by the way, that uh, I was looking on the Jewish site last night and it talked about the Passover and, that whole, and the whole event. And on this Jewish site it says, we're not sure if this is a historical event or not. There's, some, there's a lot of controversy about this. Whether it actually really happened. On the Jewish side. Oh my gosh. See, and that's what's so great about the Book of Mormon because you read things like that and you would be tempted to think, well, you know, they're saying that they need this happen, you know. But if you go into the Book of Mormon, Nephi over and over again says, and you know that this happened. Yeah. And that's from a different source. Okay. So we're going to go through all of this. Now, let me back up a little bit. I want you to see the other reason why all the plagues <coughs> occurred the way they did. I don't know how well you can see that. You're not going to see it much? Sorry. It's okay. I wonder if... Well, we see the big print. It's just the five print. No. No. One or two. Click it. <laughs> Click it on your picture up here. Three or four. That's good. Oh, oh there we go. Okay. So so there there are the ten plagues. Okay? Now, I want you to see that it is no accident that uh, each one of these plagues actually corresponds to some of the gods of Egypt. Remember, Egypt had many gods. Uh, and each one is responsible for different things. Um, by the way, it is really fascinating and it's important to kind of know this. I remember a few years ago going, going to the, uh, the, uh, in the, the Quest for Immortality exhibit uh, in Fort Worth uh, talking about the Egyptian Omduit which is what uh, Hugh Nibley called the Egyptian endowment. It was a process of, after the, there were certain steps that you had to go through, and at each step you took on certain promises, you were helped by certain gods, and that's what, that was that process towards immortality. Okay? Fascinating. And to actually go into the Onduit room, and, and the, there was a path to go from here, over to here, to over here, and it had to be done in a certain order. Uh, all that just... <clears throat> but the, there were a lot of different gods and so each one of these as it turns out each one of these plagues would attack or refute one of the gods of Egypt uh, now a couple things about this water being turned into blood um uh, Notice that the interesting note, it was, it was duplicated by the Egyptians. 
In fact, the first two are, are duplicated by the magicians in his court. Uh, and it also, the, the water turned to blood, actually also occurred in Goshen where the Israelites lived. Okay? Uh, same with the frogs. Now again, the frogs, why, why would the frogs be a problem? Because the river turned into blood, right? Where are they going to go? On land. Okay? And then as they rot, then you're going to get lice. And by the way, the description, I won't take time to do it, but if you, you ought to read through this. Where are the frogs going to be? In your food, in your bed. I mean, he's pretty descriptive about where, and it says it in the scriptures. They will be everywhere. In other words, they will drive you nuts. Okay? Uh, then the flies, disease on cattle. Then you're going to get boils. And at that point, the Pharaoh's magicians are going, you ought to let these guys go. We can't, there is no way we can even match this thing. Okay? That's just crazy. Uh, the hail is interesting. In that uh, the Lord is going to say to them, the hail's coming. Hide in your house and put your animals in your house because anything that's not that's outside is going to get killed here. By the way, I will add fireworks to that so it's not just hail, but it's hail with fire. Yeah. So it'll actually burn the flax and it'll burn the grain. And it's a pretty nasty is a pretty nasty hail. Yeah. And then we're going to get locusts. Uh, by the way, the, uh, it is interesting that the ultimate sign of the, that someone has gone through the, through the entire trip down through the underworld, safely given all of the right names and learned what they were supposed to learn to make it to the other side and achieve immortality, is that they emerge, is the dung beetle. The, the, the scarab. The, the dung beetle is the ultimate sign that you have completed the underworld successfully. Because they would see this thing go down underneath the ground and then it would emerge. Okay? Isn't that great? <laughs> I thought it was awfully cool. It's a guy. It is a very much a guy thing. Um, the one thing that I will that I will mention though, notice under uh, seven, uh, the the god Nut, the Egyptian sky goddess. Uh, She's, she's actually pretty interesting. Um, uh, she is, if, if you look on a sarcophagus of an Egyptian... I don't spend too much time. But it's, it, to me it's fascinating. Um, on a number of the sarcophaguses, or sarcophagi, they're always like two big feathers. Okay? The, that's, that's the god nut. She's the, and, and part of that trip through the underworld to prove that you can go on to immortality is that one of the gods, whoever's doing that, is going to take your heart and put it on a scale and then put a feather, a nut's feather, and put it on the other side of the scale and weigh it. And if your heart is as light as a feather, you can go on. Kind of an interesting little something there. Okay. All right. Um... So then there's going to be darkness. Um, and then ultimately, 
In each case of these, sometimes Pharaoh would say, no, no, no. Then, oh my gosh, that's bad. Yes. Oh, I changed my mind. No. Uh, and then, then you can go, no, I don't think so. And he kind of flips back and forth uh, on all of those. Now, let me just ask though on this. Go back to your own Pharaoh. <coughs> Wouldn't it be nice in your own life if you're trying to remove the pharaohs from your life, if it was just a straight line progression, it's like I'm going to... Uh, it's amazing to me when I work with people that are like dealing with addictions and, and we start working with the 12 steps. And I had one guy that's like, okay, 12 steps, that's 12 weeks, and then I'm done. <laughs> I get done every one of those, and it's pornography I'm struggling with, so this is a 12-week program. And then about three or four weeks in, and I said, no, I think we're still on step one. No, I'm behind. I'm supposed to, i got to double up now because it's a 12-step. Okay? And actually, if you're trying to have the pharaohs in your life removed, how many times is it three steps forward and one step back? And then you get discouraged when you have those fallback things that says, I was supposed to have done better, therefore I'm failing. Haven't you ever found the one that can do something cold turkey? No. Rare. I've seen them. Yeah, they're rare. But for most of us, this this pattern to immortality is kind of like back and forth and all and over and ahead and behind and we get we struggle. Yeah. Even those the, those cold turkey, they still they, they haven't conquered it. Just does it doesn't necessarily necessarily mean they've overcome the addiction. They Sometimes just they just quit using, right? They're not alcoholics, so it's an alcoholic, but they stop drinking. Right. But you know what? A lot of times they're, sometimes all of their, their uh, a lot of behaviors and things, so they stop drinking, but now they become addicted to work. They become addicted to uh, other kinds, so they cross a dick. That's, and, and so sometimes what will say, it, you, you may say, I, I've lost a lot of weight, I'm doing well. And, the, and unless you kind of remove some of the things behind that, you may simply cross the dick. Now I've lost weight, but now I'm a workaholic. Or I found something else that I've become addicted to. Missionary work. Like missionary work, yeah. Where <laughs> <laughs> uh, I get kudos. Yes. But like what you're saying about how things could, you know, how would we feel if it was a straight line? If we look in the Book of Mormon, what happens when people get to that plateau of, Especially, and, and here's one of those things that if, if people miss this, they kind of stay trapped in the Pharaoh. Again, what's it going to take to get Israel out of Egypt? Pharaoh's not giving up anytime soon. What is it going to take? A miracle brought by, brought by God. There's no way that they could get out on their own. And the people that I struggle, see struggling most with the Pharaohs are still trying to do it on their own. They seem to think, if I will just use more willpower, I will just pull myself up by my bootstraps. I just have to be stronger. And then the pharaohs remain. So that's why, when you look at these, look at all of the plagues it took to soften the hearts of that pharaoh enough to finally thrust them out.
Because, again, they had been in, at this point, these Israelites had been wanderers in a strange land, to use Jacob's term. Wanders in a strange land for how long? 400 years. They were more Egyptian than they were Hebrew. I'm not even sure I, I, I can't. Pharaoh's Pharaoh. How? Isn't that true? I, so, so part of this again was the training of a prophet along with that. So that's why this process of plagues I think was important because it was a step-by-step -step nourishing of Moses, of Pharaoh, of the Egyptian people, and also of the Hebrews to move them where they needed to be. And also, I mean, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court. He was going back to family. Yeah, he knew. That's the hardest sometimes to come at is your own family. Well, that's a great point. I mean, he knew him. How? <laughs> what if your Pharaoh is some feelings that you have towards family? And I said, well, okay, can you go, can you reconcile with your sister? Can you reconcile with your mom? Uh, can you at least be at peace with your dad? Or an abusive ex-spouse? And always, 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 what I hear is, now, nah. why? They never change. They never change. Yeah? But I will never get over it. That's the other one I hear. I will never forget. I will never, I can never let go of what she said to me. I will never forget what that bishop did. I will never forget what that young women's leader said to my daughter. I will never, I will never, I will never. It's hard when the person keeps doing it to you, though. It is. It's harder. And fair, and that's why that's why this is perfect about Pharaoh. He never really gave up. He was just separated from them by the Red Sea with no army now. But they had to change. They had to sing the Hillel on the other side of, and we'll talk about that in a second. Okay. All right. So that, that's why this becomes very, very pertinent, I think, to us. Think about your Pharaohs. And what it's going to take. And that sometimes it's going to take a series of events in your life. To soften your heart enough. To say only God can change this. Yeah. Does it if you don't forgive. Slow your progression down. Oh, oh it's, uh, in fact it is. In fact the scary part about it is. Forgive us of our sins. To the extent that. We forgive our... In other words, if we haven't forgiven, it doesn't just slow us down. It blocks our exaltation. That's the frightening part. Okay. Well, that said. So now let's get to the... Let's get to the uh, final one. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Of all the images, right? Uh, let's go to Exodus 12. Interesting to me, here comes this revelation then from the Lord, and it's going to come the night before, or the day before, or shortly before, the, the, uh, the last plague on the, the death of the firstborns. 
But the Lord already knows this is about to happen and this will work and you will then be released from... In fact, the word is not that then you'll be able to have freedom. The word is you will be thrust out. The Egyptians, the Egyptians thrust out the, the Israelites. Now, actually that works a little better, doesn't it? Okay. The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. What does that mean? For when? The new year for ever. This is a big enough moment that from this day forward, this will be that the Israelite nation will begin now. And you will begin to mark your calendars from now. If you look at the Jewish calendar, there are there are two significant New Years. Actually, four, if you told them, but two major ones. Okay? The first one is Passover. That's when the months begin. That's when uh, we this is the re, this is the rebirth, if you will, of a new nation. With God as our helm, even though for 400 years you haven't been there. What? Eight or nine generations. This is when this is when it begins. The calendars, look at this. Now, there is in the fall, we just passed it, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year, and that dates back to the creation of the earth. So in essence, you get two New Years. One dates back to the beginning of creation, but this one dates back to Passover. They can tell you how many years since Passover. That's when they began as a nation. Okay? This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It'll be the first month of the year to you. Now here comes the directions about how you do this. Hang on a second. All right, so all right, it's the creation of the earth. Rosh Hashanah. Is that, that, is that the same as this new year? No. It's a different... No, that's September. It's usually late September. It is uh, along with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the high holidays. It is we're going to celebrate the, the creation of the earth and then Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, where we're where we're made, where our sin, we're atoned for. So they'll celebrate the Jewish New Year like late September, first part of October, depending on how it falls. But those dates are established by where Passover falls. Passover is the beginning of months. This, that's why. That's why you have to look at this and say, as Israelites, guys, this is one of the most significant moments in all of Jewish history, all of Israelite history. It's dating back, and it's so significant. We will start now from this moment. Yeah. So, how old do they say the Earth is if you go right there? Oh, if you actually looked at the calendar, if you actually just pulled up Google and just said Rosh Hashanah, you know, what year is it? It's like you know, they'll tell you the exact year. Dating back, this is when the earth was created. It's kind of fascinating. Something, right something like that, yeah. You may be going here, but is, is that why when Christ died, we restarted? Yes. It's, it's very symbolic. That from, his, from his birth, A.D., Anno Domini, year of our Lord, we, we start marking our calendar forward from his birth. Very symbolic that they would, that as far as Hebrew calendar goes, it goes from the moment of our, our liberation. 
We've now been liberated. And to celebrate that liberation, we're going to celebrate it with the death of the firstborn lamb. The symbolism is just so, is so powerful. That's why I love this. Okay, now, um, let me... There's a couple of things about this. I don't want to get you seasick here. April 6th? Yeah. <coughs> Probably. But the first month. I have my doubts. What? Huh? Isn't the first month of April? Here? Yes, it is. T- t- this is the first week of the 10th day of Tishri, which is the first month of uh, first month of the year. Okay? Yeah, big surprise there, huh? That's why I say the symbolism. And Yom Kippur falls on usually right around September 22nd, which is when the Book of Mormon was brought. Yeah. Okay. And the, yeah. Okay, speaking, so here, this is so significant. Start your calendar, start your life as a people. Here we go. Speak ye unto the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of the month ye shall take every man a lamb, uh, the household be too little, then uh, you have a couple of people. You, your lamb needs to be without blemish, a male of the first year. You take out the sheep uh, and keep it to the 14th day of the month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Okay, now, this, if you go to a, uh, if you go to a Jewish Passover celebration, are they eating lamb? No. No. What, what do they have symbolic of that? Before that. A lamb shank. A lamb bone. Why would they be eating lamb? They have to burn it, right? Because it's going to set. It's going to be burnt. You're, you're going to take it. Uh, you're going to let nothing of. You're going to eat it. Eat it not raw. Uh, let nothing remain of it. It's a big barbecue. Remain until the morning, which it remaineth of it. Then, you, then any remaining, you burn with fire. How come they are not using lamb today in the Passover? This is this is the way this was prescribed. But if they burn everything, how's there anything left to eat? Well, they eat everything and then they burn what's left. Oh. You consume but, it. But you get, you consume the lamb. No, why? They just have a lamb shank. Just a bone. <coughs> well, they don't have the temple anymore. There it is. The problem was is that this lamb had to then be blessed going forward in the temple. Then you bring it back and then you sacrifice. Or sacrifice there and you bring it back. Okay. They, they only have a lamb shank these days because they don't have the temple to take it to. The fact that they have just a lamb shank says we, we're missing the temple. Is it also because the Savior is so symbolic of the lamb? Would they not because they don't believe the Savior's come yet? Uh, I don't know if they always tie this in. Okay. But because really, if you have, why, why a lamb? Well, because the Lord told us to have a lamb. Because they don't necessarily want to tie it to the lamb. That was sacrificed. But there's the directions of it. Okay, You're supposed to then cook it. Uh, nothing uh, remain of it. Um, yeah. The Jewish have actually 
change their sacrifices into money. When you go to the temple, you buy your rights and your decisions in the synagogues. Yeah. Well, but there's a lot of uh, traditions that have wormed their way into this. Um, had an interesting uh, experience the other day with a little uh, client of mine. She, she's a sweetheart. She has not... She, she got caught up in the idea that she had to be clean to take the sacrament. And so when I talked to her about it, she said, uh, well, actually, uh, I said, well, make sure that you take the sacrament. And everything. Well, she says, I've taken the sacrament for two years. Wow, why? Well, I just always feel guilty, and there's things in there. So I challenged her a while back, make sure you take the sacrament. So she does. And then, then the other day she came back and she says, I feel guilty uh, that I'm still taking the sacrament. She says, every week... I take the sacrament, I still feel guilt for things that I've done during the week. And I said, that's wonderful. I'm glad you are. And she looks at me like, why would you do that? Um, and, and so I, I took her to, uh, now I took her to uh, DNC 59. I talked about on this day, you're supposed to offer up your sacraments upon my holy day. And on this day, you shall offer up your Sacraments and your oblations. And what is an oblation? So I had her look it up. It's an offering. On the day of sacrament, on, the, on my holy day, you're supposed to go to the sacrament table, the altar for Israel, and offer up their offerings. And I said, Isn't that what is your offering? What, what oblation would you have for the Lord? She says, I don't know, I just feel guilt. I said, terrific. How about if you go to that place and you offer up the guilt and you place that on the altar? Your will. This, this week my Pharaoh's got to me. I'm going to put that oblation, that offering on the altar. Sort of got that. And then she said, but it's not, it's not completed yet. She says, that's like part of me. And so then I took her to this one. And I said, look, you're supposed to let the altar, that this, this thing was supposed to be completely consumed. The animal in Israel was supposed to be placed on the altar so there was nothing left. She says, so I'm supposed to have like all of me burnt up on the altar. I said, yeah, that's the idea. The whole thing. Well, what's that? What was left? And I said, a new creature in Christ. That's the idea. The old man is supposed, the man of sin is supposed to be sacrificed, consumed, nothing left. What's left on the other side? A new creature with a new lineage and a new name going forward. So wonderful. You bring your guilt. Bring it and place it on the altar. See, so often the sacrament, we remember the Savior, and that's part of it. But the other part of that is in, during the sacrament service, placing our will on that. I mean, I know it's a, it's a sacrament table, but this is our altar. On, on our holy day, we're supposed to put our, all, our sacrifices there. And picture, if you will, standing at the altar and taking your sins and your little pharaohs and things like that and putting that up there so that it can be completely burned with nothing left. Why don't you go ahead and read it? I love that quote. So it is that 
real personal sacrifice never was placing an animal on the altar. Instead, it is a willingness to put the animal in us upon the altar and letting it be consumed. Yeah, completely consumed. Retaining nothing. And retaining nothing. That's why, again, in the great divorce where the man can let himself out of hell if he wants to, but he's having such a hard time giving up that lizard. That's his lizard. That's he has been there all along. And let that go and he's not quite sure. But that was the image for these guys. Let everything go. Let it be consumed. Okay? And so we've got the lamb, and then we've got... Um, now, this great, this great Passover moment, the Lord didn't describe it as the Feast of Passover. He described it as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Oh, so, so the idea is that it's supposed to be unleavened bread. Why unleavened bread? What's wrong with leavened bread? Hush, you know, you know the answer to that. They didn't have time for it to rise. Okay, that, that's part of it. It's, it's the haste. I get, and that's part of it. And sometimes we just get caught in that, just that part. Well, they were in a big hurry. Yes, they were, because they were being thrust out. Okay, but if they knew ahead of time, they would have had time to 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 raise, to raise the bread. What's the problem with leavened bread? It spoils easily. It, it spoils easily. Yeah. What else? What is yeast? It's the, it's the leavening, right? It, it's a living thing, right? Why does it puff up bread? It's growing. It's alive. It's dying. Yeast is dying. It is a dying thing. And it gives off that gas while it is dying. Yeast is part of death. Have you tried to eat one of those? Matzah? Awful. Who, need, who needs bitter herbs when you got matzah? <laughs> uh, no, the idea was that it needed to be bread. That, In other words, matzah was being seen... Uh, unleavened bread is seen as uh, not tainted by death. It is pure bread without the death added to it. Isn't that great? That's why when the Savior says, I am the... That's what he's describing. At the, the very first sacrament offered was matzah. It was unleavened bread because it was a Passover Seder, Passover thing that was going on in that in that upper room. Okay. Part of the VI was thinking of pride and of having a broken and humble heart. Yes. So, so it's kind of a humble bread. Yes. Now, by the way, just, just for a minute, oh, I'll, I'll take care of a second. If if you are a if you're celebrating Passover, uh, part of what you do now is you take uh, three pieces of matzah. And you, you wrap them. Okay? And then you begin Passover by taking one of the pieces of matzah. <coughs> and you break it. And then you take the this broken part, one of the two of the three. Two of the three. You wrap it and it is hidden. It's called the apicoma. It is hidden somewhere in the house. And ultimately, somewhere by the end, it'll be the job of the youngest child. Well, I, I tell all the kids to get involved, but they can go and try and find the offy cone. 
the broken matzah that's hidden for a while. Listen to the symbolism. Three perfect pieces of bread. One is broken and hidden. You following me? Think about the Savior. So it's hidden and it has to be found. And when the child brings the Othacoman back to find it, brings it back to this most senior person there, then they have to bargain with that older person for uh, a prize of some type. So there's a bargaining if you find the broken matzah. You've got the Savior that he goes, he's broken, he goes away for a while, he comes back. Uh, and there's a bargaining for sin with a prize at the end. I mean, it's just, Jews don't even know what they have. Just how great the whole process is. But the whole thing is called, the, and it's the feast of the unleavened bread. Okay? Where did you get the unleavened bread? Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, so, now, I, I'm trying to stick with basically what was done on that Passover night. So, think about again what it's going to take to remove your pharaohs. Part of this is this process of then saying it's going to take all these miracles. The last one being the true bread has to be done. Okay? Now, by the way, in, in, in a Jewish household, seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. A week before Passover, they go through and they have to clean out any semblance of death. Anything with leaven in it, anything with bread, that, that is bread that is unleavened, has to be removed completely. Okay, so you clean the house out completely. Anything, and by, by the way, if you have a bunch of bread and you're a Jewish household that doesn't always like eating unleavened bread, what do they do? Generally sell it to a neighbor for a penny. So they have given up the ownership of that thing that is bought from a neighbor for a penny or so, and then they can buy it back for a penny later <laughs> to, re, to restock, restock the shelves. Okay, now, so they gotta, they got to spend time cleaning out. Now, the most important part of this then is this. Verse 22. Now, after, as you kill the lamb, what do you do with the blood? You're going to put it in a bowl. And then you're going to take it and you're going to put... And, you, and it says, you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood... In the basin, strike the lentil, the top piece, and the two sides with blood that are in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until the morning. And the Lord will smite the Egyptians when he seeth the blood upon the lentil. And the Lord will pass over. And you shall observe this thing, verse 24, for an ordinance to thee and thy sons forever. Now, the symbolism of that is what? Why would the Lord have him put blood on the side post and <coughs> the lentil? Any ideas? Okay. What'd she say? It's so that you won't pass through it because the door is something that we pass through. It's symbolic of Christ. In what way is it symbolic of Christ? Well, you have the blood at the top, which is the thorny crown and the You see the cross? 
You got the blood on top and you got the blood on the sides. Okay? The blood of the lamb. And it is the blood and, and it is the blood of the lamb that has been placed there. And by the way, if you go to real quickly, if we go over to John ten nine, look at what he says in John ten nine. I am the door. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go out and find pasture. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Okay? So in a sense, he is that. By the way, one last thing I would mention on Passover. Verse 26. Uh, I love this. And it shall come to pass that when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? The most consistent thing that I ever read in all, there's a lot of different Passover seders, different ways of of going through the ceremony. The most consistent piece is the children, the youngest child in the room, is always charged with saying the same thing, which is what? Anybody know? Why is this night so different from any other night? And ye shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses, and he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head in worship. Okay? This is, I have, I have Christian envy for those churches with church bills. I wish our chapels had church bells. I love, after being in England on my mission and hearing the bells on a Sunday morning, on a Christmas morning, there's just nothing like church bells ringing out. Okay? I have Jewish envy for Passover. <laughs> I wish somehow it was we did Passover as a, as a church because it's just so beautiful in terms of how this works. So why do we not observe it since it says we shall observe it forever? I'm not, well, we do the sacrament, and I think that was meant to, to be that, but I don't know. By the way, if you want to do Passover, is there anything wrong with that? No. Oh, please do it. <laughs> yeah? At BYU, they have a yeah, Victor Ludlow has been doing uh, Passovers for forever. Uh, in fact, I think I, I, I tease Victor Ludlow. I keep running into him at Education Week, and I said, "You know what? You were really young when I had you for Isaiah." And he said, "Yeah, I was like." He says, "I was like 25. I was like the youngest professor on campus." Okay, and he's still doing it. Unbelievable. No, they don't. No. Oh, oh. by the way, there is one other thing. Whenever we talk about this and we say, okay, one of the traditions was that um, uh, we're going to leave a chair for Elijah. Because Elijah is supposed to come back. And we kind of laugh at that and say, well, Elijah did come back. He came at Easter and Passover because April 6th, uh, 1836 was uh, Passover and Easter. And Elijah did come. True. But we forget that who else came on on April... No, it it was uh, May 27, 1836. Who else came? Elijah and who else? Moses did. (laughs) Moses came during Passover. 
bringing keys. That's almost more significant, it's as equally significant as it was with Elijah. That the one who instituted this would show up on Passover. They're waiting for Elijah. We say not only did Elijah come, but Moses who started the whole thing also come to the Kirtland Temple and to deliver keys. I just think it's spectacular. Now why are they waiting for Elijah? There's a tradition in Jewish, in Jewish circles that Elijah would come. He said he would. He's going to return. And, and that Elijah, we have, we have the stories of the three Nephites. The Jews have the wandering Jew who is believed to be Elijah, who shows up as a hooded figure and he helps people at certain points along the way. He is the original wandering Jew and he might show up at Passover, we're going to leave him a Elijah isn't necessarily an individual, though. It's more of a spirit of Elijah that they preach. Yeah, yeah. All right, so, I got oh, 15 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. My, my daughter-in-law is Jewish, and uh, the male children in the family have been taken to a moil, and we go and participate in that, and he said the part of Jared Abraham there for the ritual. Oh, it's great! Is it? I love that their that their histories and their traditions are so steeped in all of this stuff. What a why is this night so different from everything else? Let me tell you who you are. Let me remind you of your Jewishness and your heritage and everything that was done for you. I just think that's magnificent. That's why I have such Jewish envy for this. Yes. Yeah. Let's keep going. I got just a, a couple minutes. Um, all right. So now we get to maybe the most spectacular miracle of all, uh, and that that is the the parting of the Red Sea. So let's hop over to fourteen. So finally, the the, uh, the the death of the firstborn is enough, and they thrust out the the Israelites. Go, go down. Well, we'll go. We'll, you know, might cost you some jewels or something like that. Great. Take some riches. Take some jewels. Go. Get out. Go. Um, but fascinating to me also. Do we understand being thrust out as a as a modern day church? Where were we thrust out of? New York? Kirtland? Jackson County? Far West? Nauvoo? Were we ever cast out of Salt Lake? Almost. We left Salt Lake. Buried the temple thing in dirt. And everybody moved to Provo. While Johnson's army was coming through. Okay, We have been thrust out of a lot of places. Egypt does that. They cast out. They cast out the prophets. They stoned the prophets. They cast them out. 
And that is a pattern that always happens with Babylon and Egypt, is that when they don't like you, they cast you out. Even when we're glad to be free of it. And the, uh, in, in the screw tape letters, uh, it starts with the idea that uh, he's quoting uh, revelations where Satan is a lion going forth and seeking who to devour. And the devils in hell are waiting to devour the souls of the righteous that they have claimed. In the end, Wormwood, the nephew, fails to rescue or to, to save the patient and he is devoured. Fascinating thing. Anyway. All right. So uh, it was told uh, the uh, so they leave, they take off. Uh, his heart changes again. Why have we done this? Why have we let Israel go from serving us? See, sometimes in our process we think when I'm finally rescued, life gets better. When the Lord rescues me for something, it's much better after that. Just a reminder, those of you who saw Ephraim's rescue, that occurred after they had been rescued. They have to be rescued again. They were rescued at Martin's Cove. Ephraim's rescue comes after Martin's Cove. They had to be rescued again. Sometimes when we get rescued, it gets worse. And it certainly happened here. So, they're going to chase him. So now, now we have that moment. And you have the, the Egyptian uh, chariots from behind. An angel is holding them off. They are standing there with the waters of the Red Sea in front of them. And the people are suddenly forgetting every miracle that's ever happened to them. You know, they're saying... No, and it doesn't hear. They said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt with us to carry us? Is, you know, let us alone. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians that we die in the wilderness. Um, no, <laughs> it wouldn't have. Because they don't know everything the Lord has in store for them. But at, at moments when we fear, we forget all of the Lord's miracles. When it looks like our pharaohs may uh, capture us, when they may beat us, we forget all of the merciful things that have occurred. Would it be better? No, it wouldn't have been better. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not. Fear ye not. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord, which He will show unto you this day. For the Egyptians, whom ye have seen this day, shall, shall ye see them no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. <coughs> Speak unto the children, the Lord says, that they go forward. Now, wouldn't it be nice in, in, in our life if we had that kind of constant direction from the Lord to escape our pharaohs and conquer our Red Seas? Wouldn't that be great? We have it. We do. I want, you to, I want you to flip over for a second 
to DNC 8. This is Joseph and Oliver as they're trying to translate the Book of Mormon. Oliver is given a chance to maybe do some translating. I want, and the Lord is going to say something very interesting to him. This is what I want to finish with today. Verse 2, Yea, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. In other words, when something is right, you will receive how many witnesses? Two. You will know it in your heart and you will know it in your head. You receive two witnesses. Then he says, now... The Lord says, okay, what example can I give to Oliver to have him understand how revelation works? I could do all the revelations I've given to Joseph Smith. You've been working with the Book of Mormon. We could talk about Nephi and Laban. There's all these instances that the Lord could use. Let me describe to you how this process works. Look at the example that the Lord uses in verse 3. Behold, this, the head and the heart thing, this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit. Let me, let me change that. This is the way. This is, you're looking at the process. This is the way. By which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. How did Moses know what to do with the rod to escape his Pharaoh? How did the Spirit guide him? Behold, I will come upon you in your heart and in your head. This is the Spirit of Revelation, and he says this to Oliver, and I think he says this to all of us. This is thy gift. Apply to it. You are entitled to receive as Israelites, being chased by your own pharaohs, you are entitled to receive the power of revelation the same way that Moses did in the most spectacular of all miracles, the parting of the Red Sea. You have the ability to access the same guidance and the same counsel. And your Red Sea may not be as spectacular, but it may be just as formidable. Let me... Elder Holland, I included in my background material, instead of a rundown on these chapters, I gave you a talk by Elder Holland, which I think for anybody struggling with their pharaohs, you ought to read on a regular basis. I can't tell you how many of my clients I've had read this talk called Cast Not Away Thy Confidence by Elder Holland. He gave it. I was actually there in the, uh, in the Marriott Center when he gave it as a, as a uh, president of BYU. And it, it's a magnificent talk. But let me just quote a little bit from it.
He talks about in this talk, sometimes people that get answers to prayers and then they doubt afterwards the answers that they got. Yeah. But we're gonna we're gonna start we just second guess ourselves. Did I really? And he, and he starts off by talking about Moses' experience where he sees the Lord in the vision and then Satan comes after. And Satan says, Son of man, worship me. And Moses won. And, and, and Moses goes, You don't glow much. <laughs> like Moses in that vision, there may come time after the fact when competing doubts and confusions, but it will pale when you measure it against the real thing. Remember the real thing. Remember what you have felt. Remember the miracles. Remember the tender mercies. Remember the real thing. Remember how urgently you have needed it in help in earlier times and you got it. The Red Sea will open to the honest seeker of revelation. The, the adversary has power to hedge up the way to marshal Pharaoh's forces and dog our escape right to the water's edge. But he can't produce the real thing. He cannot conquer it if we will it otherwise. Exerting all our power, the light will again come, the darkness will again retreat, the safety will be sure. That is lesson number one about crossing the Red Sea by the spirit of revelation. We have to remember the real thing. Interesting when sometimes people struggle with the church and they, they're not quite sure you take them back. What did you feel when you first read the Book of Mormon? What did you feel? What well, felt really good? Well, now I'm not sure. Yeah, I know. Remember the real thing. Uh, what was the name of that talk? It's called Cast Not Away Thy Confidence. In fact, if you just go to the Google and thumb them, and you put in, cast not away that confidence. You can get it. Okay, and here's the second lesson, and we'll finish with this. That is the second lesson of the spirit of revelation. After you have gotten the message, after you have paid the price to feel his love, and hear the word of the Lord, go forward. Don't fear, don't vacillate, don't quibble, don't whine. You, you may, like Alma going to Ammonihah, have to find a route that leads an unusual way. But that is exactly what the Lord is doing here for the children of Israel. No one had ever crossed the Red Sea this way. But so what? <laughs> There's always a first time. With the spirit of revelation, dismiss your fears and wade in with both feet. <laughs> In the words of Joseph Smith, brethren and sisters, shall we not go on in so great a cause, go forward and not backward. Courage, brethren, and on, on to the victory. Now, let me just finish with this. And we're way up. Again, I believe we all fire prayers. I, I know, I know. We do. The Lord will give us the same revelation that Moses got. But we have to remember the real thing. I also know that often you will get the answer like Moses did in Moses 1. 
and then the greatest opposition will come after you've gotten answers, not always before. Sometimes it's like Joseph Smith and the opposition hits you just before the vision comes. Sometimes it's more like Moses and the vision comes and then the opposition hits. The, the road, the rescue after we receive guidance and counsel is oftentimes worse. Remember the real thing and go forward. I pray that we can do that and move forward in our lives. And I, and I do that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, by the way, we have about three, about three weeks left, I think. The, the last class this semester will be the first week of December. That will be our uh, oral final. So start planning on what stuff you want to bring for the oral awesome final. Uh, but like I say, we're down to about three weeks.
next time people say prayers, kind of use a model. We miss it over there. Let's do that. We do. I mean, you know, they turn their back that way. We're over there. And you don't hear it in the corner? We don't hear it. Perfect. So they need to... We will do that. Because, you know,